This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12 today. And as you're getting turned there, uh, just remind you, we are in a pretty long study of the book of Mark. But what an amazing thing it is to study the life of Jesus Christ, because he is our leader, he's our savior, and he's the one that we want to model our lives after. So the things that we come across from the life of Jesus, the things that are applicable to us, we want to learn from those things and apply those things to our lives. And so what a great study. I'm excited that we're going to be spending some uh, serious time in this book. I hope that you will have your uh, perseverance on, your distance running attitude on, that it'll be a while and it won't be uh, every six or eight weeks something new and fresh. It'll be, we're, we're, we're working through, but I promise you the benefits far outweigh the, anything that may seem monotonous as far as, oh, another week in Mark, another week in Mark. I promise you. If you're serious and you come in with an attitude of prayer, God will continue to work on your heart and your life and make you more like Christ in this. So we're in verse 1 of chapter 2. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, probably Peter's home there, not his own. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this community of believers and how much value is placed upon learning from your word and applying it to our lives so that we can live differently. And God, I pray today that you'll teach us your truth, God, allow us to not walk out of here the same, but be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We talked about last week, even though Jesus did a lot of healings, a lot of miracles, Jesus was about the main thing, preaching the word. Look at verse 2. He was preaching the word to them. And so Jesus, although he did authenticate his who he was, and we'll see that in a minute, by the things that he did, the miracles that he did, the word preaching the message of the kingdom. God's rule and reign has come in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so he constantly was about the word, 
giving people the word, teaching them the word, teaching them the truth. And so we're going to learn later on uh, as we study through the Gospels that many of the people who, in this situation, picture it, just tons of people gathered in, packed in. We learn, and they're exposed later on for the fact that many of them weren't there to hear just the word. Many of them were there for the spectator event of seeing the miracles, to see God do the, Jesus to do the amazing things. They were consumers. They were there taking it in. And we know that it wasn't very deep because later on we learned that many people abandoned him who claimed to be his disciples when things got hard and things got difficult, that they left. And then ultimately, when Jesus died on the cross, we know that pretty much everyone had abandoned him at that point. And while his true disciples did come back and return, many, many of the people who did at one point claim to be followers of him gave up, quit, no longer followed him. Why did they do that? Because it is hard. Following Jesus is difficult. Following Jesus is hard. It goes against everything in the culture. It goes against everything within ourselves, our flesh. And it's so much easier just to go with the flow of life and not make waves, not shake things up. I've asked Jeb to come help me illustrate this today. So Jeb, if you can come up here real quick. I like to give visual illustrations from time to time because they make it easy to remember the truth that we're talking about today. And so uh, Jeb's going to help me illustrate something. And this is, uh, well, this may be intimidating a little bit at the beginning, all right, um, I want you to rest, okay, to know that I searched on Google and found a website called How to Do Anything. Go to the next slide, Thad. Basically, anything you want to know, you can learn from How to Do Anything, all right? So you want to fly to the moon one day? Go on there. You can check it out. It'll tell you how to fly to the moon. You want to know anything in life? There's your website, all right? I'm sure it'll always work. All right, this is How to Break a Board with Your Bare Hands, all right? And so how's that, how's that feel to you today, all right? You, you feeling strong? Senior in high school right here. He's, he's a fit young man, um, very impressive, and uh, I don't know where you got that from, um, right? Your mom's side of the family, I'm sure, right? And so today we're going to see if you can break this board with your bare hands, all right? So one thing that's really important is to understand the grain of a board, all right? So you see how this, the grain of the board, runs this direction, all right? So it's going to be much easier to crack the board according to the website in this direction than it is by turning it the other way and going against the grain, Okay? So I want you to make your, your fist into a palm like that, like that. We're just going to strike it. And one thing to spare you the details I learned from this site was you want about 60% of your weight on the back foot so you can then push forward and hit this with full power, okay? And then another thing, this is interesting. Look at this. This may help you out. Look at this next slide, all right? If you yell out to release energy when you do this, this is going to help you, okay? So um, feel free to make as much noise in your strike as you'd like to do to show us how impressive you are in your strength, all right? So you ready? All right, here, I'm going to hold it here. You're going to hit with the grain of the board, okay? With the grain. And so this is definitely going to be, according to the website, the easier way to break this board, all right? Give us your best shot here, all right? Look at him, man. He's serious. All right, here we go. You take karate? Oh, man. Yeah, look at that. All right. All right, grab that other board back here. All right. Is this about the same thickness as that board? All right, so which way is the grain of this board going? This way. this way. All right, so we learned from that previous slide, which is the easier way to break this? It would be this way because you want to break it with the grain. But because this board's so narrow, and my point is to go against the grain, this board will turn it this way, and so you're going to try to break it against the grain. What do you think about that? It's probably going to be harder. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a lot harder. And in fact, 
we're probably not going to make you try that because I don't want you to break your hand, okay? Because I've tried it. It is definitely a lot harder. Now, we do have some black belts in here, Kirk, John Huggins, who could come up here and really be impressive and show us how this is done. But we, won't, we don't want them to show off, okay? So, so we won't have them do that. But, but I want you to just, just, just hit it slightly every so much and just see how, don't, not hard, but just, yeah, just slightly to see if you think it would be a lot harder. It proves pretty solid, doesn't it? All right, man, thanks a lot. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. All right, so going against the grain, which is an idiom, which means that you're, you're, it's harder, things are tougher, it's not the natural way to go about things, it's more difficult, you can expect that. Being a Christian, being a believer, is going against the grain. And I want this to, to be the image that we take out of here. That's the big idea today is if you're calling Jesus your Savior and your Lord, that it's going to be difficult in the world that we live in. Because everything about culture, as I said, everything about ourselves, our flesh, naturally we want ease. Comfort, uh, we want the comforts that our society says indulge. Embrace whatever you feel to be right. Jesus says... Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that picture of taking up your cross, but the cross was a form of execution, as you know, during the times of the Bible. And to take up your cross when someone was convicted and were sentenced to die by crucifixion, they would have to take up their cross and carry it through the city on their way to their crucifixion. And so truthfully today, while we celebrate baptism for Casey, Baptism is a picture of that very death, that very taking up your cross, because you say, I no longer live, I'm dead to myself, Christ now lives through me. And so we walked to our crucifixion. In fact, in ancient times, baptism was often called your death grave, because that was the point where you said, I am not living my life for just ease and comfort, but I'm living it for Jesus Christ. And so no matter who you are and how long you've been a believer, this is something that doesn't come natural. It's something you must work at, you must fight, you must seek after Jesus and his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit every single day because your default will be ease and comfort and the things that feel good and satisfy. And so when it comes to our culture, as we know, our culture seems to be more and more in our face as far as anti-Jesus, anti the values and the beliefs and the things that we hold to be true. But let me, let me just give you like a couple thoughts on this really quickly before we move on. I think sometimes that we, as Christians, we make, it, we make the, the argument or our debate with culture something that it doesn't need to be, to, to be. And let me explain what I mean by that. Is If we're believers and we're struggling and fighting against sin, think about somebody who's not a believer, somebody who is a sinner dead in their trespasses and sins, they don't have a chance. They have no Holy Spirit. They haven't been redeemed, declared righteous before God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. So it's natural for a sinner to sin, right? And so as we look out at culture at large, not those who claim the name of Christ, we can expect them to indulge and live in whatever manner and way that feels right to them because that's they're following their father, Satan, who is the one who is commands and dictates their lives, whether they know it or not. And so if it's a struggle for us as believers to go against the grain, it's impossible for a non-believer to live morally. 
Somebody can come across as being, okay, they're a pretty decent person. They, they seem to do things right. But in their hearts, before God, they are still in their sins and dead. And so nothing they do, even if it appears to be something good, is righteous before a holy God. And so as we um, deal with and interact with culture, one word we use a lot around here is the word winsome. We want to be winsome in the way that we approach unbelievers and deal with unbelievers because we know that they will not change their actions until their heart is changed, until they give their life to Christ, until they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so we can expect sinners to be sinning. And so when we go into culture, we're going against the grain. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult because we're around people and we're in situations of things that we don't really particularly like. In fact, things that repulse us, things that that are so anti-God that they almost make us sick to our stomachs sometimes. But our calling to be salt and light, we must go against the grain and we must take the love of Jesus, speaking the truth in love to the culture that we live in. And so God has commanded us to do those things. And so while we want as citizens of the United States of America Fortunately, by God's grace, we are able to have a voice in our society. We can vote. We can speak our preference on the thing, the way that we think society should be run, ran and conducted and the laws that should be made in our land. The truth is we always have to remember that we're a pilgrim people in this land. We're a pilgrim people in this world. We're passing through our homeland is where it's heaven and ultimately the new earth when Jesus returns. And that's our homeland. And so our homeland is not here. The United States of America is not God's land. God's land is God's people. And so he's preparing us, and he's, uh, he's allowing us to be salt and light. And so our job is to preach the full counsel of God. We must preach what the Bible says. We must teach what the Bible says. Jesus was preaching the word. Even though there were people there for the wrong reasons, he was preaching the word to them. And whether you're an elder, a deacon, a pastor, or just a person who comes to church, your job is still the same. Your job is to preach the gospel. It may not be standing up here in front of people, but it's no matter where you're at, is to preach the gospel, to give the word of God to other people. And so it's going against the grain. It's hard. We'll reference this again and again. And as I read this passage of scripture over and over again leading up to this message my mind kept going back to another passage and some other words that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. And in that verse, in, in chapter 11, verse 12, this is, this is a, a little uh, portion of Scripture, something Jesus said, which a lot of people struggle with knowing what exactly Jesus meant by this. But let me read it to you. It says, From the days of John the Baptist, this is Jesus talking, until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it. By force. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, commentators and scholars are divided over exactly what Jesus is getting at, but I tend to agree with what John MacArthur, pastor and commentator, writes on this. He paraphrases this by saying, The kingdom of heaven is vigorously pressing itself forward, and people are forcibly entering it. All right? It's forcibly pressing itself forward vigorously, and people are forcing to enter it. So what does that mean? What does that mean? He goes on to say this. Those who enter the kingdom 
of grace through faith in Christ, do so with great effort through the sovereign power of the convicting and, uh, convincing and convicting of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. Those who enter the kingdom of grace through faith in Christ do so with great, great effort through the sovereign power of the convicting and converting Holy Spirit. And so the point that Jesus is making here is that the kingdom of heaven is not... Citizens of the kingdom of heaven don't passively acquire the kingdom of heaven. It's something that constantly goes against the grain. And this verse in no way, shape, or form is any at all advocating any kind of violence. The kingdom of heaven doesn't advance that way. But it is advancing what I'm going to call violent faith. Violent faith. And that's what I see in this passage today. Some people who are so serious about getting to Jesus, they're willing to do some pretty unusual and unorthodox things. And so I want to define what Jesus was talking about here in Matthew eleven twelve. Violent faith is biblical boldness, a passionate pursuit, an unshakable and radical trust in God and his promises. A radical trust in God and his promises. You see, because it's easy sitting in a, a Sunday morning service this morning, comfortable, there's no really no persecution for being here. We're free to do this. It's easy just to be here and soak it in, sing some songs. But when we walk out into a world of sinners, that's where we must incorporate this idea of this violent faith, this boldness, this passion that says, I truly believe so much in the promises of God that I'm willing to stake my life on this. I'm willing to go against the grain of society because my faith is so strong in the promises of God. And I'm going to be bold in that. Bold in that. Now, depending on what tradition you were brought up in, maybe you, this idea of violent faith may strike this idea, which some people have, of, you know, if you just believe strong enough, you know, it's almost like you can control God and manipulate God to get him to do whatever you want him to do. But God isn't obligated, regardless of how strong your faith is, God isn't obligated to grant your wishes and desires, okay? Plain and simple. God isn't obligated to that. One of the clearest passages, I think, that points that out is back in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. You remember the story possibly of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were three young Hebrew men who were taken in exile to Babylon, and there they had to decide whether they were going to stand for their faith or just go with the culture of the day and just kind of just do whatever everybody else is doing. And many instances where Daniel stood strong and his three Hebrew friends stood strong. And I love in Daniel chapter 3 where they were threatened, everyone in the kingdom was threatened. If they did not bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, their king, I think it was Nebuchadnezzar, that they would be thrown into this fiery furnace. And their response was incredible. Look at this verse with me. It says, if we are thrown into this blazing furnace, the God we serve will be able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods. I love that angle of that faith they take. They say, look, our God is more than capable of delivering us from something he created, fire. He's more than capable because he's the king of kings. You may be the king. He's the king of kings. He's able to deliver us from whatever you throw at us. But even if he chooses in his sovereign will to allow us to go through this, 
we're still not bowing down. We're, we're still, you can throw us in there and kill us because we have violent faith. We believe in God. Even if God doesn't work things the way that we hope that he's going to work them out, we still believe in him because it's his plan. It's not our plan. And so in this passage, we see that these four friends and this guy who is paralyzed, you see this incredible violent faith that's happening. They say, we're going to do something so unorthodox because we believe, we're, we're trusting, we know that Jesus is able. And so look what they do They're in verse 4 again. They climb up on the roof, they remove part of it, they make this opening, and then they start letting their friend down into the room. So unorthodox. Four guys who dared to do something totally, totally outside the box for sure. They said, we will find a way to get to Jesus. We will find a way to get to Jesus. You know, passive face would have said, look, door's closed, it's full. No, probably not God's will because if, if it was God's will, then we could just walk right, right in and go right up to Jesus. But you know, the fact that there, there's resistance here, we try, brother, we try to, to, to take care of you here, but sorry, we're not going to be able to do that today. Hopefully you can figure something out later, see him again. They didn't do that, did they? You see this violent faith, this willingness to do something so unorthodox. They were persistent. They would not stop. And, and think about how this may translate into our lives. You know, I know for many of us, oftentimes the fear of people, the fear of embarrassment can stop us. Think about as they're hoisting this guy up to this house, the top of this house, and they're pulling him up there. Think about all the people that were staring and looking, and it would be easy for us to, you know, in a situation like that, to get embarrassed and say, hey, let's, let's don't do this, man. You know, this is kind of weird. This is kind of awkward. All right? Let's, let's, let's figure out another plan. But they didn't. They were determined. They took the kingdom by force. They went against everything in order to get to see Jesus. And so this reminds me a lot of just the way that we live the Christian life. Let's make it real personal for a second, this idea of going against the flesh with violent faith. Because the truth is, as we talked about, that everything in us desires our comfort, our pleasure, our satisfaction. We want to do what feels right to us, and we want to do things that are easy most of the time. But we know that God's way is not so easy. And living against ourselves is not easy. Even with the Holy Spirit living within us, it's still a daily battle. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It's going to be on the screen for you, um, or you can look in your Bible as well. Go ahead, Thad, and put that next verse up there. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, Paul says. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's some pretty, pretty violent language in itself, isn't it? This idea of going against our natural impulses for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. The, the, the things that come our way, the, the desires that come at us, the temptations, God says, we need to make every effort. We need to put our energies into living a life that's holy, a life that's pleasing to him. And so he says in this verse, there's a kind of life that leads to death, and there's a kind of death, ironically, that leads to life. 
And so, is this anything but passive? Absolutely not. And as I read this verse, I can't help but to think about my own life. And, and am I serious? Am I that serious about killing sin in my life? Am I, am I that serious about getting to Jesus and having Jesus be Lord over every area of my life? I have to admit that for many, many years, I did not take this encouragement that seriously. I had really no strategy in my life for killing sin, for putting to death those things that were not pleasing to God. And I would dare say that many of you don't either. But if this is that big a deal, right, the language that he incorporates here, to put to death the deeds of the body, to put them to death, that is violent, to kill the things. Mortification is the old word that was used when talking about killing the flesh and dying to the flesh. How seriously do we do that in our lives? All right, let's get real personal, okay? Think about things that we struggle with. We all do. Different levels. Gossip. Anger. Lust. Bitterness. Pride. Everybody in here, I don't care who you are and how long you've been a believer, at some level, you struggle with all of these things and more. What's our strategy for putting these things to death through the power of the Holy Spirit? While this isn't a just me by myself operation, and we'll see that more in a minute, the Holy Spirit's in us. He's given us resources. There's a command there for us to be violent in our faith. Not again, again, no, we're not talking about any kind of physical violence, self-mutilation or anything like that. We're talking about a faith that says, I believe in the promises of God so strongly that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to live a life that's holy and pleasing to him. I'm willing to go against the grain, not only in culture, but also in my own personal life in order to see God work. John Stott says this. This is a great quote. He says, What the world calls life, a desirable self-indulgence, leads to alienation from God, which is is in reality is death. Whereas the putting to death of all perceived evil within us, which the world sees as an undesirable self-denial, is in reality the way to authentic life. So he says... What the world says is life leads to death, as Paul said. And when we deny ourselves and we take up our cross, in reality, that leads to authentic life. And so, violent faith is willing to say, I'm going to use all the resources that God has given me to put to death the sins of the body. I'm going to give all, take all the resources that God has given me to help me stand strong in this culture, to be bold and declare the full counsel of God. And this is on a side note, as I, as I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but to think this practically as these guys went up on top of this house and started tearing off the roof, that somebody was going to have to fix that, right? Somebody was going to have to pay for that or, or, or take the time to fix that. And I, and, and I just real practically, I think that violent faith, when we do things for God's kingdom, it, it causes a sacrifice. It, it's sacrificial, all right, it's not easy, it's sacrificial. And in this case, the time and the labor and the money that would be required to fix this thing. And anyway, how does that apply to us? I was thinking 
many people have really grandiose and huge ideas for things that they want to see happen and done, but at the end of the day, there's no follow-through, all right? They, they want to do something. They may make this big splash and this big impact uh, a, one day a, a year or a couple days a year, but then the truth is there's really no follow-up to what this ministry that they're, they've begun or this started or something that they want to see done for the name of Christ. The, practically how I see this work out in the church world is oftentimes people will come to me with uh, really great ministry ideas. Hey, let's, let's do this. All right, can the church do this ministry or do that ministry? And they're pretty solid and pretty good for a couple months, but then they get tired and they get bored and they get uh, the, the, the hassle of, of corralling people and encouraging people to be part of it and the leadership that's involved in it. They just get worn out and they're just like, I don't feel like doing that anymore. And so kind of the, the church is left kind of holding the bag on this ministry uh, that was begun or started. You know, there's been many a times when people have started great things like clothing closets or food pantries or this or that, but then after a few months, their, their board, their vision is incorporated, and then they wander off. It doesn't say you have to stay connected to something forever, but there, there has to be a sacrificial attitude, a faithfulness over the years to see God continue to work and to continue to do great things. Even in relationships, that's true, right? I mean, it's, it's some of your personalities... As soon as you've talked to somebody a couple times about Christ and they say you're not interested, then you're done, you've moved on. But yet, a faithful person continues to pray and continues to ask God, God, give me opportunities uh, in the life of this person. Don't write them off. Don't say, well, I'm done with them. If God's put them in your path and again and again you're interacting with them, be diligent. Violent faith is sacrificial. It's willing to go the extra mile. And this guy, he's rewarded in verse 5 for his faith, his friend's faith. Look what happens. Jesus sees his faith. It's incredible. He says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Let's be real here for a second. Put yourself in that guy's situation. You get all this effort to get to Jesus. You're lowered down there. You're ready for your big healing moment. And instead, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Most of us truthfully, at that moment, would be a little bit disappointed, right? We want the physical results, not the spiritual results, a lot of times. Trusting God should bring me physical blessings. Spiritual blessings, all right, yeah, those are good, but, you know, I'm really looking more for the physical blessings of my faith. God, bless me. Give me health, wealth, prosperity. The spiritual stuff, well, it's all good and everything, you know, but truthfully, I'm really not so much excited about that. If we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes that's where we find our, our mindset, our hearts. You know, Jesus, we know from reading the passage, Jesus is going to heal this guy. Jesus knew all along he was going to heal this guy. But the truth is, his physical healing in 100 years from that point, where that really mattered? 100 years, he's still dead. But what he got was something so much better. And what I see throughout the Gospels, I'm reading Mark, fresh and anew, that Jesus doesn't do things the way people expect him to do it. He doesn't. People oftentimes have a certain expectation, and Jesus does something 180 opposite. So look what happens. Verse 6, six through 9, you got these religious guys, these religious leaders. 
They're sitting there, and they're questioning in his, their hearts, why, verse 7, why does this man speak like this? It's blasphemy. I mean, it is. I mean, he's, he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. Who can do that but God himself? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Look, from our perspective, which one's easier, right? <laughs> to me, it'd be much easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's really no way to confirm that, to verify that, to test that. So it seems to us the hardest thing would have been for sure, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He would have put himself on the spot in this moment, right? They would have known whether he was for real or not, whether he had this power or not. But Jesus knew what they were saying. And what Jesus was doing here, he was basically just throwing down the gauntlet. He was saying, look, I'm God. Look, this is going to be revealed to you more and more as I make my way to the cross. But I'm showing you there's something bigger going on here than just a good rabbi, a good teacher who can do miracles. I am God. Throwing down the gauntlet, I'm showing you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Verse 10 and through 12. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and what? They glorified God. That's the main thing. They brought glory to God. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. Your sins are forgiven. For those of us who have grown up a lot of our lives in church and we know we're forgiven, I think that loses its impact. There's a song that we do here. It was written some years back, and it's called Before the Throne of God Above. And every time I hear this chorus, I can't help but to remember what Jesus did for me in forgiving me of my sins. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on me, him, and pardon me. He looks on Jesus and he pardons me. God the just, God the righteous, God the holy. If Jesus is your Savior, don't despair. I don't care how strong the battle is against sin. If you're in Christ, God the just looks at you, and because of Jesus, he sees righteousness. He sees a sinner saved and forgiven by grace. I don't know how awesome that seems to you today, but for me, so much of my life is oftentimes Satan tempts me to despair. Does he not you? He reminds you of the guilt within. He tells you what a sorry person you are. How terrible your sin is. Why did you do that? There you go again, failing. Why can't you get it together? I can assure you that condemnation is not the Holy Spirit. That condemnation comes from Satan himself. 
Because when God sees you, he sees a sinner saved by grace. He sees Jesus. God the just looks at you, and he sees Christ. And I think when we really understand this pardon that Jesus gave us, this forgiveness that Jesus gave us, we'll approach Satan, we'll deal with his strategies a lot differently. Sure, we hate to fail. We, we're disappointed with ourselves so many times. We lack the passion and the violent faith that I talked about. But the truth is, no amount of penance is worth it. No beating yourself up over something accomplishes anything for the Christian. Jesus gives us everything we need. He gives us new morning mercies every day, every moment. He gives us the power of Christ, 2 Peter 1.3, in Christ, God has given you everything you need to live a godly life. Everything you need to live a godly life. And then a couple of verses later, he says, now make every effort. You see, these things are counterparts. God has given you everything you need, but now incorporate violent faith into your life. Believing and trusting and anchoring your life into the promises of God, the forgiveness he offers, and as we face, which inevitably will happen often, disappointments and struggles over not being able to live the way that you would hope to live and to represent Christ the way that you hope to represent him. In those moments, we're able to deal constructively with our, our sin and our guilt. We're able to confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He restores that relationship. He doesn't move anywhere. When, when we sin, Jesus doesn't go, hey, let me let you suffer for a while over there. And just I'll stand over here and you just deal with it. And when I'm ready, because you know, you've really disappointed me there again, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you. Jesus doesn't go anywhere. Amen. And that's a great mental picture to remember, that when we sin, we're the ones that pull away. And Jesus says restoration is available. New morning mercies are available for every moment, for every day, for every situation. I don't care if you messed up 10 minutes ago and sinned. Mercy is there. Hope is there. I love what John Piper says. He says, Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness, but also to secure our sin-killing obedience. And so I, I would dare say that, based upon the word of God, that if you have no desire whatsoever, really, truly, to, to put to death sin in your life and to live for God, then chances are you've never been redeemed or forgiven in the first place, or you're so far away from Christ that you're not sure whether you are or not. And that's especially true for younger people. Because at the age you're at now, you're trying to determine, do I own my faith? Is this mine or my parents? You know, do I, do I really believe? You know, I've gotten this all my life and been taught from the time I was old enough to, you know, walk. I've been in Sunday school. Is this my faith? And you're struggling to decide, you know, is this, the, do I want the way of Jesus or not? And yet so many times that I, I see students, particularly uh, as they get into college age, they kind of default back to this, okay, Jesus forgave me of my sins, but, so that's good. I'm good to go. So let me just live however I want to live. 
because I'm good to go, right? If I die, you know, if I drink too much and crash this weekend, then I, I'll, I'll be in heaven. But I'm gonna, so I'm going to just live however I want to live. But Piper's quote makes it very clear. The same God who forgave you of your sins also instilled within you this sin-killing obedience, this desire to put to death all the other things that God says to be true about a believer are true in your situation. As much as he says, you're forgiven, he says, now you have all the tools necessary to make every effort. And so kind of practically what that means to me, again, is uh, when dealing with, with children, my kids, with, with, with students, is well, we want them to make a profession of faith. We don't just say, okay, my, my work's done here. All right, now we can you know, watch Netflix all weekend because there's no spiritual uh, need in my house because everybody's going to heaven. Awesome. No, th- this is a time to say these are opportunities to continue to invest so that one day when they are at that crossroads to say, do I really know Jesus? Have I really believed in him and put my faith in him? Or am I just going to think that my profession of faith is my salvation that's where your fruit begins to reveal itself. It shows whether what's really happening in your life is authentic and real or not. And while none of us, as I, I, I alluded to over and over again, none of us are perfect, but there should be this Holy Spirit conviction in our lives. There should be this desire. And Scripture does make reference to the fact that sometimes people can slide so far away that they begin to not even feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, I encourage you to read that chapter. You forget you were ever redeemed in the first place. But the Scripture says, examine yourself. See if you're found in the faith. My son Colin went on a, a mission trip yesterday to Jamaica. And, and while we were taking the airport, he made a comment that I have alluded to here before. He said, why is it like that our mission trip is like, three-fourths female. He said, where, where are the guys at? And I was like, it's a great, that's a great observation, Colin. And while at that age, I probably wouldn't have complained about the odds on that, you know, that trip. I would probably like that makeup. The truth is, I, I appreciate his insight to recognize the fact that, you know, they're, they're, the guys aren't taking the spiritual lead. And the same thing is true with their campus ministry. They're, they're, it's way, way bent heavy toward the female side. And while we love women passionately following Jesus, we know, all of us in here know, that we need men following Jesus passionately. And what that looks like, and that's what I tell guys all the time when I meet, that means that the awkwardness of opening your Bible in front of your kids and your, and your wife and, and saying, let's, let's read some scripture together. Let's talk about Jesus. Why, why is it that most guys, when we start to talk about Jesus, like our, our lips just get tight and we can't say words and we're like, okay, I want to say that. I know I need to say that, but I just, oh, can't say it. I can't. I just can't do it. It's too hard. It's worth it because it's the way of Jesus to go against the grain. And we're all, we've all been there. We're all there all the time. If you know me well, you know that constantly I battle with the flesh just like you do. But he gives us the power, he gives us the ability to live for him. As I was running a couple days ago, this, this little expression, and it probably isn't totally unique to me, but it just, it just came to my mind I was thinking about a video they were getting ready to show from a guy here in the church named John Cunningham, who was really the benefit of, of his K group just loving him. And he made a couple of expressions to me, which he'll say on the video, and we give that away. 
But this, this little quote, this little thing came to my mind, and Thad's going to put it up there on the screen for you. Many of the blessings of Christ are found only through community, through Christian community. Many of the blessings, many of the things that we come to experience Jesus on this earth come through other Christians, through community, the body of Christ coming around you and encouraging you and loving on you. And then ironically, that is also our greatest witness to the world. This love and this community that we have and this encouragement that Mitch can come to me or and I can go to, to John Dowdy and John Dowdy can go to Wayne and we encourage one another. And ladies ministry, Jesse teaching in and building into the lives of our ladies and, and others in the church. Are, 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 we're, Sherry is, is leading a steps class and all these people who are doing these things, Roy leading the contagious life and our elders and our deacons, all of these relationships are the way that we experience God so many, way, so many times on this earth. And then when we have that kind of love and that kind of, those kind of relationships that are happening, then it points the world to Jesus. It points to Jesus because we're being his body. We're being his body. I, I want us to just watch this uh, video. John Cunningham, wave your hand back there, John. He, he's been in the hospital, had a bad fall. He went down to Tallahassee for rehab, and his K-group kind of surprised him. And uh, I asked him when I was down there the other day, make, make a video, just tell the church what happened here. So go ahead. Oh, you'll know they are Christians by their love. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us all about love. But I would like to let everyone in the congregation know about the love of Grace Church, and more specifically, the K group that meets on Sunday night. As most of you are aware, I am in a rehab hospital in Tallahassee. On Sunday night, the K group in mass, led by Roy Yeager, came down to Tallahassee and held the Bible study in the hospital. And I want to tell you all that that is an expression of love that I have never experienced before. Love from a group of people who are Christians who want to study the Word with their fellow believer. Awesome, and I will tell you, most of the people in that K group are probably younger than 30 years old. So these are young people reaching out to Mr. Cunningham. He's been in church a long time too, haven't you, Mr. C? To say this is the best expression he's ever seen. That's what we've been called to do in this violent faith, living and trusting the promise of Jesus, happened through knowing the Word, hearing the Word, praying the Word. And we respond specifically and actively to that, and we seek out intentional community to help us, to grow us, to be more like Jesus. Going against the grain is much easier when you're doing it with other believers than it is doing it alone. I want to encourage you to take a step today. If you're not in a group, you need to get in a K group. You need to be in a small group. If you're, maybe K group doesn't work for you. We have women's ministry that meets on Thursdays. We have fight clubs that meet throughout the city on different times of the week. 
We have K-groups on Sunday night now, not just Sunday morning. I mean, not just uh, Wednesday night, I'm sorry. Opportunities to develop relationships, to have those in your life who are going to encourage you. So be in the Word. Seek God in the Word. Hear His Word. Respond to His Word. And fight with violent faith and community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just the truth of your word today, God. We thank you that as we looked at an event that happened a long time ago, but we see an incredible act of faith, something so unorthodox, yet something that you looked on and honored and referenced and made sure several thousand years ago that we're reading here this morning to learn from and to be inspired by. And God, I pray for those who are stuck in the jaws of sin right now, that they, their life has no joy because they just find themselves in, in such a guilt-ridden, beat-down situation that they cannot find the joy of you. God, I pray that you will help them to seek out community, others who can encourage them to bring wisdom into their life, to guide them and direct them into the right path, the right way. And God, for those who just need to continue to develop the discipline of a daily time with you, just seeking you and and experiencing that new morning mercies and that time with you where they can just be refreshed and recharged to ready to go and take on the day and the challenges of a culture that don't really like what we have to say. I pray you'll help them to do that. And God, we love you and we thank you for Grace Church. We thank you for what you're doing here. And God, I pray that you will continue to give us the resolve to follow through and make the sacrifices necessary in order to be a community that makes a difference and we're light to this world. In Jesus' name we pray.